Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Tuesday, September the 2nd. I had to actually think about what month it was there for just a moment. So uh, I know it's already September or it's finally September, however you're thinking about it. Uh, there are some uh, sometimes that uh, a person says something and we should take note of it, even if we're not certain that they are aware of exactly what they have said. So in a uh, in his regular briefing on Monday... The um, the director general of the World Health Organization made a statement and it was uh, intended by the World Health Organization and the uh, and the director general to be a very broad statement about the importance of care for the elderly, a specific uh, attention turned to the elderly during the coronavirus pandemic. That was the intent of the larger statement or the summary remarks that he was making. But listen, listen uh, to these two sentences or three sentences. When the elderly are dying, it's not fine. It's a moral bankruptcy. We should not be morally dead. Every life, whether it is young or old, is precious. And we have to do everything to save it. Actually, it's more sentences. I should have counted up the sentences before I told you how many sentences it was going to be. Um he is making a pro-life statement, a comprehensive pro-life statement that we ought not miss, that we ought to be able to celebrate, that we ought to be able to point to in the future when uh, the World Health Organization and others do not value every life, young and old, as if it is precious. Do not, in fact, do everything that is uh, within sort of human capacity Uh, on behalf of life. And the moral bankruptcy, we should not be morally dead conversation, is a really good one to be having today. And that is solid ground for Christians to stand on. So I just want to lift that up to you when you hear um, public figures in particular make statements that, you know, they they intend to be about one thing. Listen for their use of um, spiritual, ethical, moral language and be prepared to Point to it, lift it up, ask questions about it. What do they actually mean when they talk about lives that are young and old? Are they talking about the preborn? Um, and and is is every life really precious? Do we actually regard every life as precious? Um, and if so, how does that affect our personal um, efforts with our neighbors? Um, and and how does it affect our public policy? How does it affect how we as a nation um, engage and? And how does it affect how we even feel, like feel at a, at a gut level about what's happening to people uh, around the world? All right. One more quick uh, headline here um, out of California, because you're going to hear it today, depending on sort of which Christian circles you circulate in. 
Uh, John MacArthur's church um, is, you know, they sort of like to be, uh, frankly, in the headlines. They're sort of, uh, they like that. Um, But this is a couple of headlines that I want you to know about. And you're going to hear one more often than the other from the secular media. The one you're going to hear from the secular media is that Los Angeles County um, has uh, terminated a a lease on a parking lot that John MacArthur's uh, church has held for, uh, I mean, a number of decades. Uh, It's been, you know, it's been where a lot of the people parked in order to uh, attend worship. So you're going to hear a lot of conversation about that. You're going to hear, you know, uh, charges that that's, you know, harassment. And anyway, the other headline I actually think is more interesting, and it focuses in on the sermon that John MacArthur preached this last Sunday. And this one you're only going to read in religious news um, from religious news sources because, you know, they're frankly the only ones parsing out what's being preached on a Sunday morning. But John MacArthur actually claimed this past Sunday from the pulpit that the pandemic um is uh, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. Um, the exact quote he declared: "There is no pandemic." That was the declaration he made from the pulpit. And let me just say that if you want to be trusted as a pastor, uh, you have to speak the truth. And um, and so uh, John MacArthur is going to be increasingly under fire, I think, from uh, those who would beg to differ, having had family members um, experience the coronavirus and die uh, as a result of it, and businesses that have, I mean, just on and on and on. Everyone who has had any impact in their life from the coronavirus uh, is going to take issue with a pastor who stands in the pulpit and says there is no pandemic. Uh, He declares that it's all a ruse to shut down Christian worship. Um, We have an enemy. That is true. The church has an enemy, but um, she's going to persist. She's going to prevail. The gates of hell actually do not prevail against the church. She's going to survive. She's not dying. Uh, On and on and on. Be a person who speaks the truth of what God has said about the church and its uh, enduring quality no matter what. The church has survived pandemics in the past. The church has uh, survived cultures that were, you know, in some ways hostile to it. And let's just be mindful of just how really expansive our religious freedom is here in the United States. And let's not cry persecution when that's not what we're experiencing. All right. Daryl Crouch is up next. He is the pastor of the Green Hill Church. He also blogs at Crosstide.com. And he is on deck. We'll be right back. In the federal workforce here in the United States of America, there are approximately uh, a little over 2 million non-postal civilian workers for the federal government, 1.4 million active duty military, nearly a million uh, military reserve personnel. And um, I don't have a I don't have a count on postal workers, but we're talking uh, with Daryl Crouch about not only the dignity, but really the witness of public service, people who serve in roles that we would regard as uh, as service to the public. And so, Daryl, welcome back uh, to Mornings with Carmen. We love talking with you. Oh, it's great to be with you. Good morning. Good morning. Let's talk about these 10 axioms of public service. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think to begin with, 
the the idea, as you've mentioned, that public service is a high calling. And I know in a political season, it seems like we're always in a political season or election season, but uh, we see political ads, we hear political talk that is uh, often very uh, disparaging, it's very negative, and uh, we can kind of begin to think that public service is at the dregs of society or something. And uh, my effort at, at Crosstide was simply to to say, remember who you are. If you're in public service, I want you to know that this is a wonderful calling. This is an honorable calling. This is a calling that uh, God has established uh, for you and for uh, our neighbors, for society. And uh, it's important that that we, um, uh, you know, speak and act in a way that, that reflects that calling. And so uh, I want to follow, I think most people want to follow those in leadership and uh, uh, make it easier for us if you could. All right. So we're going to focus in on people who, you know, put themselves forward, um, offer to run for political office. And we're going to kind of narrow in on that particular sort of category of public service. And it is a high calling. There's no question about that. What would be another axiom? Well, it it um, it sacrifices for the common good. I know that third axiom, public service sacrifices for the common good. Uh, sometimes as Christians, we are very focused on what we would call special revelation or the gospel. Uh, that is the good news that people need to hear, must hear, in order to respond in faith and have a relationship with God. But public service is kind of pre-evangelism. It, it presents the common good. Uh, it, it presents uh, an opportunity for people to experience the goodness of God, uh, just like the rain falling on the righteous or the unrighteous, the sun shining this morning for everyone. Um, there's many, co- there, the, the common good is a, an important part of public service. And so as a public servant, you're, you're really um, offering the, your neighbors a gift from God. And so uh, in treating people the way you want to be treated and the ambitions that you have to serve are important ones uh, as we put other people first. So I uh, appreciated this this list that you aggregated at crosstide.org, um, these 10 axioms uh, of public service. And I was um, I, I was thinking to myself, Daryl, if I ever had occasion to meet a political candidate in person, mm-hmm. And have a conversation with them. I could actually, you know, not the entire list, but I could ask them questions like if I used number six, public service shapes the conscience of a community. I could ask the candidate, how do you perceive yourself, you know, in in this role? How would you perceive yourself as shaping the conscience of our community? Or um, or number seven, public service cultivates lofty ideas. What are the lofty ideas that you would seek to elevate in the conversations we're having in our community or, you know, in, in our state or in our nation, depending on what level they're running running for? Sure. No, I love that. And that's exactly where this article came from. Just a desire to, you know, send a letter uh, or meet a public official. And certainly we all know some personally and, and serve with some. But um, yeah, I think the the idea of listen, these are big ideas. I know that you spend a lot of time on uh, nuances of public policy and debating zoning regulations and so on, depending on what level of government you serve in. But there are some lofty ideas of liberty, of goodness, of c- civility. Uh, these things that uh, our founders were. were were so important to them in shaping and writing the Constitution, for example, and the Bill of Rights and 
and the the dream that they aspired to that America would become. And uh, there is a there is a desire, I think, in all of us to live in an exceptional land. We all want this to be the very best land possible. And there are many evidences of God's grace on our nation. And I think a lot of that comes from people who have come before us who had who had bigger ideas, who who uh, did not uh, give themselves to. Um, I, I talk about the um, 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 the the trash heaps of pettiness and pride, and we're we're so prone to negativity. And negativity sells. And uh, pointing fingers at your opponent sells. It gets you on the news feed for the day. It uh, blows up your social media feed, and so on. But it doesn't inspire us. Uh, we want to be free-loving, freedom-loving people. We want our kids to be reared in a community that has peace and shalom, and that uh, people are watching out for one another. And so, I just would encourage public servants and uh, those of us who follow them to all uh, turn our eyes to bigger, to bigger prizes that are more uh, multi-generational and uh, that are long-lasting. That will help our nation. Uh, continue to thrive. Daryl Crouch and I are going to return to this conversation in just a moment. You can find what we're talking about today at Crosstide, Crosstide.org, 10 Axioms of Public Service. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Daryl Crouch, pastor of the Green Hill Church. He also writes at crosstide.org, so we want you to check that out. We're talking today about the 10 axioms of public service, or 10 axioms of public service. There may be others. Here's a question, uh, Daryl, that I always like to ask a person who's running for any office. It doesn't really matter. Running, you know, dog catcher, mayor, police chief, mm-hmm. president, whatever. I like to ask them one question. Why do you want to be... And then whatever the role is, like, why do you want to be the mayor? Why do you want to be the police chief? Why do you want to be the president? Um, I have uh, been stunned at the number of people who can't answer the question. Mm, yeah, they don't yeah, know I why think... they want. They don't. It's not. It's not something that they're doing because they have an aspiration to live into, you know, a a service uh, or you know identity. Um, they they normally just want to beat the other person. They want to win. They, um, I mean, sometimes, I mean, I don't want to cast a, uh, you know, I don't want to make too general a statement here. But, um, but in many cases that I have encountered individuals running for office, they, um, they want to demonstrate that they are not that. They are not the other thing. But they don't necessarily have a positive vision. They're not able to articulate these lofty ideals and, uh, or articulate, you know, how they're going to shape the conscience of the community through the role that they're going to undertake. No, I think you're right, and I the um, we could talk a long time about uh, the absence of civic classes and so on. I think a lot of this generation, um, over the last really twenty or thirty years, we have begun to our our public policy minds have been shaped by the news and by talk radio, uh, which is wonderful in many ways, but uh, by other outlets rather than the uh, underpinnings of liberty and the underpinnings of a of a nation like the United States of America and a constitutional democracy. And we may not have our our feet firmly grounded in in the long game and understanding what it takes to build a civil society and one where 
everyone can thrive. And it's been so polarizing and so politicized. And so I think many people who are running may be weary of certain aspects of public life or public policy and so on. And so they want to wade in. But you're right. Uh, many times, simply the goal is to win or to beat another opponent or for their ideas to, uh, to, to champion the other ideas. And certainly there's a place for that. But I think uh, we lack an understanding of where we stand on the timeline of history and how our service, whether at a very, again, a low level, the dog catcher level, or at a very high level, can impact a generation that would then multiply into the next generation. So, uh, sure, I think we can do a lot better job, even in the local church, maybe especially in the local church, in helping our people understand how public service is a service unto the Lord as we uh, love him and love our neighbors. Uh, Most of us are never going to run for a political office, not because we don't want to, but because of the scrutiny, um, the negative scrutiny that we anticipate we would experience and our families would be subjected to. And it's just become such a nasty, the electoral process has become so nasty that even those of us who um, have a heart that is that beats in this direction um, will probably never likely run for public office. Talk with us about how we as Christians must support Christians who are serving um, in, in the public sphere. I love that question, and I appreciate it. I think as a pastor, this is part of the, uh, the work I hope, hope to do and hope these kind of conversations will promote, because many public servants receive the most the harshest and the most unfair criticism sometimes from people of faith. Uh, we, we, we Christians uh, launch out on social media or in other outlets and uh, do not are not encouraging. And so even this article is an attempt to give language uh, to what how Christians should should speak to and encourage those who serve. Uh, I think many people don't want to serve because, as you say, that's just going to put them under an incredible amount of pressure, put their family in a in a position that no one is can be prepared for, and uh, really encourages the very thing that we despise, the very attitudes that are so destructive in the public square. And so I think as Christians, we have to train our voices and train ourselves to speak in a way that is encouraging, that speaks the truth and love, that moves policies forward, that protects the vulnerable and champions uh, those who need a a voice in the public square that don't have one. Uh, I think we have to learn how to speak with kindness, put other people first, assume the best about those who are serving until we know different, and uh, help shape the conversation. None of us, Carmen, are going to respond very well to um, harsh and demeaning criticism. We just don't, we aren't persuaded to, um, to get better in, in that kind of environment. And neither are these public servants, whether they're in Christ or they're not in Christ. Uh, they need us to come beside them and champion them in every way that we can. We're going to disagree about some important things, and we need to do that in a way that's constructive and helpful and also rooted in biblical orthodoxy rather than in uh, popular rhetoric. And as we learn to speak to public officials, I think we can encourage those, particularly at the local level, um, to, uh, to enter and serve us well. 
Um, next up, I'm going to talk with David Kenneman from the Barner Group about uh, what they are learning in their research about how churches across the country are feeling about a post-COVID future. And I know that, that um, you know, you are concerned not only about your own congregation, but others. And so um, I just want to, you know, tee that up by saying, by asking you, um, this is a yes or no question. And I, I feel like I know the answer for your your congregation. Do you as a pastor expect your church on the other side of the COVID pandemic to not only survive, but thrive? I really do. I really do. I think this is helping us. I think Romans eight twenty eight is true all the all always, but I think we'll get better. I think every, I think the evangelical church will overall uh, get better, uh, and uh, it helps us. Uh, think pain and suffering helps us to understand our mission better, and uh, put the right things in the right place, and um, and follow Jesus more faithfully. We look forward to um, ongoing conversations with you. Daryl is the pastor of the Green Hill Church. You can find him at crosstide.org. Thank you, brother. God bless you. You too. We'll be right back. All right, maybe you heard David Kinneman from the Barna Group on NPR's Here and Now uh, actually discussing the pandemic's in, in impact on churches in America And he actually said one in five churches could close within the next 18 months based on COVID-19 and trends that existed before the virus. Um, I wanted to talk with David about that. Uh, We have at least one listener who sent me a text message um, a couple of weeks ago saying, I would really, really like to hear more about, you know, how churches are faring in the midst of the coronavirus. David Kenneman, who is the president of the Barna Group, is up next. We'll be right back. Did you know that you're irreplaceable? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. The time, approval, love, and acceptance you give to your teen is like gold in the economy of relationships. So don't stop giving affection to your kids. Make a habit to meet with your teen every week. Designate a time when authentic conversations can happen, when trust can be fostered and built up. It's your personal, direct interaction that's so important. In fact, if you skip over this essential ingredient, your teen might look for acceptance somewhere else. So here's the bottom line. Don't be stingy with your time and love. Don't be stingy with yourself. You're irreplaceable in your teen's life. Do you have teenagers under your roof? Find more encouragement and helpful resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Today, David Kenneman, you know him from the Barna Group. You can find what we're talking about today at Barna.com. David, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Hey, it's so nice to see you. How are you? It's great to be with you again. Thank you so much. Many of us um, heard or have read references to your interview on NPR's Here and Now. And so I just wanted to talk with you about what your research is showing in terms of the pandemic's impact on churches in America. Well, it's multifaceted, and so some churches are doing quite well, especially those that were ready for, you know, sort of digital worship and and, and had been doing that for some time. Um, usually those were larger churches, but not exclusively. 
Uh, and then another group of churches are are just sort of surviving and and doing okay through this. Um, they're they're making all the necessary changes that that uh, you know the situation demands. And then there's a third category of of churches that are are really struggling, and they're anticipating struggling even more. Um, we estimate that about one in five churches could close in the next eighteen uh, to twenty four months. Uh, it really depends a little on how you how you define that. But we found that about uh, 58% of churches say they're very confident they would survive, but there's a, that leaves uh, almost four in 10 that are, are less than very confident. Uh, and, um, and then when you look at just att attendance, even as churches are coming back to worship in person, uh, many churches are finding that it's a smaller sort of total, uh, maybe 10, 20, 30% of the total uh, attendance. Uh, and then on top of that, I think there's a real habit-forming nature that this pandemic um, reveals. And I think that's actually sort of the deeper problem. It's not just sort of the economics of these churches. There were a lot of older, smaller churches that were already uh, sort of teetering on going out of business, of, if you will. Uh, but I think there's there's a real sense in which this pandemic is changing habits for Americans. There's a, a, a large number of people who are just saying, we're sort of sitting this out. We're not gonna do digital worship. We're just going to wait until people come back to church and it's all safe, which could be you know, many many months or many even even years. So we, we do see that there's a real impact on churches and um, not the least of which is the impact on pastors sort of mental well-being. They're, they're, you know, they're doing okay, um, but they're also really struggling in a lot of ways trying to, trying to do ministry in some different ways. All right. So part of what we're talking about is um, the outcomes of a recent church pulse, church leader poll that you guys do as a regular part of what happens at Barna Research. In early May, 71% of pastors were confident their church would survive. In mid-August, only 58% said they were very confident. I imagine part of that, David, is simply it has gone on longer at a wide-scale closure it's just gone on longer than most people ever anticipated. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I think it's gone on longer. It also sort of uncovers some of these deeper sets of challenges that have been that have been sort of pre-existing conditions. Um, and, uh, you know, we, it's funny, I hadn't thought about this way before, but, you know, when we talk about the impact of COVID on the physical health of, of people around the world and here in America, there's a lot of discussion around comorbidity and underlying factors and I actually think there's a similar kind of argument to be made about the health of America's churches and religious institutions that um, the, the, the coronavirus is sort of a, a perfect stalker of organizations and leaders that have comorbidity. They have, they have other issues and challenges that they haven't really dealt with. Um, you know, they maybe haven't gone through a pastoral succession or leadership change. Uh, they're part of old or dying uh, denominations. They're part of communities or, or, you know, they're not serving their communities. They become, you know, really like country clubs for faith. And so I think there's a, a whole range of questions around, um, you know, how a big crisis like this, the length of it, the way um, it, it's hit some economically. But, you know, I, I think we're going to see in the next six to 12 months um, even more economic disruptions, you know, as, as some of the stimulus money and uh, unemployment money. Uh, changes the PPP money sort of runs out for many organizations. So I think we're going to see a lot of organizations, a lot of churches, even even religious nonprofits, Christian schools. Um, you know, there's a a, a real uh, set of challenges that I think organizations are having to face, and and some of those underlying factors are just exacerbated by this crisis. 
I'm talking with David Kenneman. He's president of the Barna Group. You can find what we're talking about today at Barna.com. I want to move to uh, sort of the, the, the positive forward-looking edge of this, and that is there are a number of things that pastors can do proactively to serve in this sort of new digital age. Talk with us about um, some of your conversation with Mark Batterson on the Church Pulse podcast. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm I'm glad to to shift to a a more positive set of options for us. I mean, the first few things we've been talking about here are are sort of heavy. You know, one in five churches could close. Um, I actually just think that's, um, you know, sort of a natural part of the life cycle of any organization is just sort of accelerated in this COVID moment. Um, And there's many, many things that I think a, a big crisis like this causes leaders to have to face up to, you know, the, the, the methods and models of ministry, the degree to which, if we're really honest with ourselves, the degree to which our ministries are set up to truly disciple people in this in this context. I've been making the argument for about three years now that uh, we are trying to do what I call dial-up ministry in a Wi-Fi world um, or analog ministry in a Wi-Fi world. And, and that looks like, you know, only having an hour a week, you know, with teenagers and the fact that they need much more than just, you know, a youth group every once in a while uh, and, a, you know, a few a few sort of Bible promises, you know, sort of pasted on the walls in their home. They need they need a, 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 a sort of an, um, a holistic way of thinking about their faith. And so Mark Batterson, a wonderful leader in D.C., um, we got a chance to interview him. He was talking about a range of different things that they're working through in terms of student ministry, um, uh, also including just thinking about how to uh, think about preaching and teaching um, in the digital age and in this sort of you know hybrid sort of COVID reality. Um, and so that's a big part of what we've been trying to do this last six months. Um, Church Pulse Weekly has been a really fun podcast I've been able to host with Kerry Newhoff about you know what's changing and what's what's um, helpful. We're working on a uh, we'll be having a, an interview with Andy Crouch coming up in a week or two on Church Pulse Weekly, where we talk about um, TechWise families and TechWise ministry, uh, TechWise churches. Um, we've really tried to orient our business, even as we describe some of the problems. We are more and more focused here at Barna on uh, what are the solutions, what are the innovative ideas, and we're just seeing so much of that crop up. Um, Mark Batterson being you know just one example of you know, um, dozens of interview, uh, interviews we've done on Church Pulse Weekly, but many more uh, that we've interviewed of pastors who are, you know, despite the headwinds, really stepping up with hope, with innovation, with courage in the face of the challenges that all of us are facing. Yeah, I, I really appreciated the, um, those conversations and just wanted to encourage people to check that out. Hey, David and I have to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to talk about resilience and the importance of resilience today in terms of discipleship. We're also going to give you some trends that are shaping next-gen discipleship. Again, a conversation with David Kenneman from Barna Research. You can find it at Barna.com. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Barna Group President David Kenneman. You can find what we're talking about today at Barna.com. David, let's, um, let's talk a little bit about resilience. I'm remembering here your book, Faith for Exiles, and I'm thinking that, you know, part of what we were sort of revealed to not be very good at in the existing church is adapting the way we do discipleship to the real, the actual questions the next generation is asking and the real needs they have. Talk with us about resilience. So I've spent the better part of 15 years studying, you know, millennials and Gen Z, and um, I've come to believe that uh, the target that we're shooting for as parents, as 
guardians as, as sort of champions of the next generation, pastors, leaders, teachers, educators. We, we try to create these sort of dyed-in-the-wool Christians that, you know, sort of look like us, that act like us, that think like us, talk like us. And, you know, there's a certain part of that that is, is understandable, but the, the whole idea of resilience is, a, I think, a, a really necessary concept. And actually, it's showing up in a lot of literature, uh, not just within sort of Christian circles, but within business communities and within higher education. How do we make resilient students? How do we have resilience in our leadership and in our organizations? And the idea of resilience is that um, even when the winds get stronger, uh, the organism uh, it becomes becomes uh, more capable of standing up to those resistant forces. So, you know, a, a forest or a tree is resilient, whereas a brick wall or a building um, it may be built really strong, but but the, over time there's there's certain sorts of, of factors that are going to erode or, or or challenge the integrity of that building. And so, you know, man-made structures are always going to have. Um, uh, challenges related to their structural integrity. And, and if we try to make disciples, uh, if we try to, to sort of do it in our own power, we're, we're going to end up really struggling. So we really, we really focused in on what does it look like to create resilience? Um, and it's really been a fascinating study. It, it really was uh, all talked about in this project called Faith for Exiles, where we talk about, you know, Daniel from the Old Testament and many of the exiles in, uh, in, in Scripture demonstrate a resilience that as as the as as things get tough the tough get going right and the resilient get going and um so we found some really fascinating things among them is that resilient disciples among 18 to 29 year olds um first there's only about 10 percent one in 10 young people who grow up as christians qualify in our research as resilient disciples and that should sort of just stop us in our tracks um, that still represents about 4 million young Americans in our country today who qualify as resilient disciples, a huge number in absolute terms, but a small number in total and uh, in terms of the percentage of young people who grow up Christians. And um, we found some just really cool things. I mean, for example, relationally, you know, this generation is struggling, uh, and rightly so, with 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 a lot of anxiety and mental health issues. And when I say rightly so, it's like they're 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 living at the edge of, of you know, a, a, an experiment with what it means to be human and, and what do we think about gender and sexuality and work and meaning and, you know, uh, everything from, you know, conspiracy theories to the media cycle. I mean, this generation is is amped up on screens. And um, so there, there's a lot of anxiety in this generation. And yet when we find resilient disciples, they're much more likely to be relationally resilient. They have close friends they can trust with their secrets. They have people around them who are honest with them about their weaknesses. They they say they have close friends who aren't just like, you know, their their family or or even their peers, but they have older adults that they really love and admire. So this res picture of resilience was such an encouragement to me, um, even as a parent of 21, 19 and 16 year old kids, uh, my own millennials and Gen Z, you know, in my family. And um, I always I, I always say that it's like, you know, they're, uh, they, they, they're, how lucky must they be to have me as their dad? Cause I have all the answers about what it, <laughs> what it takes a great parent. But, um, you know, that's just, that's just, uh, me being, you know, sort of facetious because of course I'm still learning too. And I think a lot of us have, have a lot to learn about what it means to really impact the lives of our own children and, you know, the, the students and young people that are, that God's put in our, in our path to try to impact. So David, I love it when, 
you know, it's just like evident that God is stirring something and that he's, you know, lifting up a conversation in multiple places from multiple directions. We just recently talked with um, with Valerie Bell um, from Awana about their entire rethink and redesign of everything that they're doing in terms of next generational ministry. And it's all about resiliency. And so I just, you know, I just, I love it when you can see that the things that you guys have been doing for a generation are having an impact on the way that ministries in local places and contexts, but also really big ministries, are completely rethinking, revamping, retooling um, to do next-gen ministry in a way that produces resilient disciples. That's just, it's exciting to me. It really is. And and if you think about, you know, how exciting that um, that clarification of, of vision is, um, you know, for a want to focus on resilience, because what could be more resilient and resilient uh, making than scriptures, you know? So mm-hmm. um, I've gone through a lot of, of tough times the last two, three years. My wife has brain cancer. And, you know, as a, as a person, as a leader, as a father, as a husband, um, as a Christian, you know, I have found that the pages of scripture, you know, sort of speak into my heart and soul and into the lives of my family in, in profound ways that, you know, ha- had we not been going through the valley of the shadow of death, um, you know, it's, it's like, it's all, it's all good, but, you know, it turns out life isn't always up and to the right. And so mm-hmm. scripture is a place that if you think about the challenges that any of us are going to face in any organization, any leader, any family, any young person, life in the anxious age, um, you know, we need to we need to immerse ourselves in uh, in, in Ecclesiastes and in Proverbs and in Psalms, and uh, these these scriptures teach us that God isn't afraid of our anger, our fears, our our frustrations, our doubts. Um, he actually embraces uh, that and so much more about us. And so I, I love that Awana's made that pivot to thinking about scripture not just as a means of you know sort of the patches and the the you know the check marks and the gold stars. Those are all fine, but they're there's something much deeper about life of faith and and how scripture and our faith in the living God really changes us as people. Um, so anyway, just a, a little digression, but um, but an important one. It's not a digression at all. Um, we have been praying for Jill, and we're going to do so um, today as we say thank you to you. Again, David Kenneman has been my conversation partner. He's the president of the Barna Group. You can find what we discussed today at Barna.com. But right now we're going to pause and we're going to pray for Jill. Father, We come to you with one voice and one spirit in the name of Jesus on behalf of our sister Jill and our brother David and their kids. We lift up the Kenneman family to you. We thank you for the way that you are moving in their midst. And we ask, Father, that you would would heal in your time, in your way, but that you would give healing um, and that you would do so in a way that brings you glory. Amen. David, thank you so much for being with us today, and um, just know that our prayers continue to go up for you, even as our hearts go out to you. Yeah, thank you so much, Carmen. It means a lot. I'm uh, just sitting here full of um, f- full of uh, a-, a sense of peace, and just grateful for you guys and for uh, you know our friendship, um, even across the many miles through the years. So thank you for that, and uh, thanks to other listeners. I know other others are going through a lot. And so, you know, we just turn our hearts to the Lord and, and trust him that he's sovereign, that he knows what he's doing, uh, that he loves us, and that he sustain, sustains us even through these tough times. And all of us are going through times, you know, 2020 is a time like no other. And so I think it's a chance for all of us to focus on what is making us resilient 
and how it is that we find our peace in, in, uh, in the Prince of Peace. Amen. Thank you, brother. Thank you, Carmen. Cheers. We'll talk again soon. We'll be right back. So my conversation uh, there with David Kenneman ended in a way that um, my guess is uh, surprised you. There are those of you who will uh, be curious and want to know more. You can uh, check out the Kenneman's website that invites all of us to pray for Jill. It is PrayForJill.com. This is just reminds me, renews my mindfulness um, that lots of people are just dealing with with lots of challenges right now, um, particularly related not only to their own health, but to the health of those whom they love. Um, and so I just want to acknowledge that, um, and I want to um, pause there for a moment, and I want to um, pray for a listener whose husband is awaiting a kidney transplant. I want to pray for a listener who is a single dad. I want to pray for a listener um, who... Uh, is having uh, a real challenge in his marriage. I want to pray for a listener who um, anticipates that she's going to lose her job this week. I want to pray for a listener who, um, how will I describe this? Um, Her son took his own life in April, and um, she is with us in our community of faith, and God is moving in her life to remind her that he calls her to live. And so how do you how do you live? How do you live a real life um, on the other side uh, of the valley of the shadow of death or when your prayers are not answered in the way that you had hoped? Um, God is sovereign. God is gracious. God answers our prayers not only or not always in the way that we might hope or in the time that we might hope, but always according to his perfect will. And we trust him. I trust him. Um, I trust him to be who he is, consistent with his own character. And so when you have a moment of doubt in the midst of a struggle today or in the midst of um, pain or suffering or an ongoing health issue, I want you to remind yourself again, turn again to the word of God and remind yourself again of who he is. Because he is not only great, he is good. We've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.